This is the first in our series on eternity. Uh, Most people, whatever their culture or religion, have a suspicion about eternity, that there's something more than what we see or hear or touch. A suspicion that we've been made for something more, something eternal, something infinite. Most of us are not certain of it, but at the same time we have a longing to connect. The writer of Ecclesiastes in chapter 3 verse 11 puts it like this, God has set eternity in the hearts of men. It's there, it's been put in us by God himself, a longing, a hunger, a suspicion. Every culture, every civilization has tried to satisfy that hunger, uh, to reach out to the eternal, the, the infinite in some way. That's basically what religion is or spirituality, reaching out to God or gods of different types in different ways, trying to connect with what it is that's outside of us, uh, that's beyond our experience, to catch a glimpse of the eternal. It was that universal longing that slowly led C.S. Lewis from atheism to deism and eventually to Christianity. In fact, as he wrote about it later in a book called Surprised by Joy, he said it was that hunger, the hunger itself for eternity, that was a strong argument for God's existence. Listen to what he said. I'm going to quote. It's it's a It's a a couple of paragraphs, but it's worth concentrating on. Here's what he said. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for desires exists. A baby feels hunger, well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire, well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire that no experience in this world can satisfy the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that doesn't prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that's so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise and be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never, never to mistake them for something else, of which they're only a kind of copy, an echo, a mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall never find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others do the same. That's good, isn't it? Uh, That's the position of Christianity, that this world is full of lots of good things. We can find joy, we can find fulfilment, but that this world is not all there is. That we've been made for our true country. We've been made for something else. We've been made for an eternal home with God. That's what Christianity teaches. We can't see it. We have a feeling that it's there, we hope for it, we long for it, we long to be with God himself and the Bible tells us that that longing for God has been placed there by God himself. Our true home 
our eternal home uh, is with God. He is our true home. That's off in the distance somewhere. At the moment we're not there yet. And so God has given us a road map to negotiate between now and then. His word, the Bible, brings us home to God. His word shows us what to expect as we travel, as we move from life through death to heaven, to judgement, to the new creation and eternity. And all of that, all his words have been given to us by God, the one who inhabits eternity, the one who has made us for eternity, the one who sent his son from eternity into time and space to die a criminal's death, to defeat death and then to win eternity for all of us who trust him. And that's what we're going to be doing uh, in this series on eternity so that we can know what to expect between now and then and to ultimately enjoy the eternity we were designed for. Today we're going to look at the first step along that path, the doorway that each of us has to pass through. We're looking at death. Death. When someone we love dies, it leaves a dull ache. There's an emptiness, there's a loss. Death is a dark cloud. It blocks out light and joy and purpose. Death is a cruel thief who robs us of hope and joy. Death is the heartless bully who pins you down, helpless and despairing. Winston Hugh Alden captures death's impact beautifully in his poem Funeral Blues. He describes the death, the despair of losing someone to death, someone he loves. He writes, Stop all the clocks, cut off the telephone, prevent the dog from barking with a juicy bone, silence the pianos and with muffled drum bring out the coffin, let the mourners come. Let aeroplanes circle, moaning overhead, scribbling on the sky the message, he is dead. Put crepe bows round the white necks of the public doves. Let the traffic policemen wear black cotton gloves. He was my north, my south, my east and west, my working week and my Sunday best, my noon, my midnight, my talk, my song. I thought that love would last forever. I was wrong. The stars are not wanted now, put out every one. Pack up the moon and dismantle the sun. Pour away the ocean and sweep up the wood. For nothing now can ever come to any good. That's the devastating power that death holds over us. But at the same time, when we are touched by death, it can, it can focus us. It can clarify our priorities. It can help us weigh up the things that matter and the things that don't. I see that in the eyes of people attending a funeral. As I stand here next to the coffin of their loved one and I try to speak God's words of comfort to them and you can see it in their eyes, they're listening carefully to every word. They're desperate for some comfort in the face of death some reassurance, some certainty about where they stand, 
some certainty about eternity and how they might fit in. So what does God want to say to us today about death? What does the Bible say? Well, the first thing to say is that death isn't the way God designed things. Death isn't the way God designed things. Right back in Genesis chapter 2, God set Adam and Eve in the garden and he gave them the tree of life to eat from. Uh, We sometimes forget about that tree. We forget that there were actually two trees. Uh, We think about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and we forget about the tree of life. But God set them in the garden. As long as they ate from that tree, they would live. In a perfect relationship with each other and with God forever. That was God's plan. But the second tree, uh, God's plan also included the right for Adam and Eve to choose. 2.16, God commanded the man, you're free. You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Most of us know how that turned out. The snake tempted Adam and Eve. They chose to eat the fruit. Yes, they did receive the knowledge of good and evil. From that point on, they experienced good and evil. Uh, They knew sin by experience. They knew what it was to choose their way instead of God's way. But just as God warned, the second consequence of eating the fruit also came true. They died. They didn't die straight away, but the process of dying began in the human race. They were removed from the garden and and therefore they couldn't eat from the tree of life. And so death began its relentless attack. Death slowing them down, wearing them out, running them down. Uh, Until death wins in each of us, until death claims its prize and people stop and they return to the ground where they came, uh, where they came from. And death has acted like that for every one of Adam's offspring since. Every one, 100%. Sometimes we go quickly, sometimes slowly. Sometimes we go confidently, sometimes we go kicking and screaming. Sometimes comfortably, sometimes painfully. But everyone dies. Uh, Things were no different in Jesus' time. Uh, People died. John chapter 11 tells the story, perhaps one of my favourite stories, about one of these people who died, Lazarus. Uh, We're told was actually one of Jesus' close friends, but that didn't make him immune from death. The chapter begins, Jesus finds out Lazarus is sick. Everyone else knows that Jesus... uh, could heal him but he deliberately stays away for long enough so that Lazarus dies. Why? Jesus has a lesson to teach people. Verse 11, they're on their way to Lazarus and Jesus says, verse 11 of John 11, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord if he sleeps he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death. His disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead and for your sake I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. Jesus is raising the level of difficulty. 
because he's come to earth to do more than just fix up illness or disability. He's come to defeat the greatest enemy of all, death. And he's about to do something for Lazarus which will be the entree for something greater. And that's the second thing I want to say about death. Firstly, death is not the way God planned it. Uh, Secondly, that Jesus defeats death. So let's look at the story. Jesus finally arrives uh, where Lazarus was uh, and his sister Martha says to him, Lord, if only you'd been here, verse 21, my brother wouldn't have died. But then she adds, still, I know God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus doesn't disappoint. Your brother will rise again, he promises. Martha says, sure, I know at the resurrection on the last day when everybody rises uh, to judgement and eternity, he'll be raised then. But Jesus has something more immediate in mind. And he says those wonderful words we looked at in the kids' talk. Uh, Verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. It's an amazing promise. It's not a promise to somehow escape physical death. It's a promise that even though someone might die, it won't be the end. He can live through death into eternity simply by trusting the one who conquers death. That's Jesus' claim. It's too incredible to believe. And so to prove his claim, he's got something amazing in mind for Lazarus. He will be the test case. He'll be the down payment. He'll be the preview. He'll be the proof, the evidence that his words are reliable. At this point, Mary's other sister, uh, Lazarus's other sister Mary comes in uh, and she comes with a whole parade of mourners and the entire mob are sobbing and weeping at the loss and the pain of death. And Jesus' response in verse 33 is one of my favourite paragraphs in the whole Bible. We read, When Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews who'd come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. It's, it's such a short sentence, but it's so comforting, isn't it? Jesus feels our pain. Jesus hates what death does. He hates how death has impacted the world. It was never meant to be like this, and one day it won't be again. But Jesus wept. Uh, Jesus wept. And so he's going to do something about it, something for Lazarus, something for Mary and Martha, but, but even more, he's going to do something for our sake, to those of us who are eavesdropping in on that conversation centuries later. Because what, Laz, what Jesus does for Lazarus is a demonstration of what he promises for all who trust. Do you remember the promise? He who believes in me will live even though he dies and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And Lazarus 
will be the proof. The proof of the power, the proof of the words. Just as his tears were proof of his compassion. So they go to the tomb. Take away the tomb, commands Jesus. And when they do, he prays and then he calls out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. We're not sure why it needed to be a loud voice. It could have been a whisper, I guess. But perhaps Lazarus was somewhere that it needed to be loud to get his attention, maybe. But verse 44 describes what happened then. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped in strips of linen and a cloth around his face. That's the the eyewitness description, isn't it? He's wrapped up like an Egyptian mummy. Take off the grave clothes, said Jesus, and let him go. Release him. Let him go. Set him free from the hold of death. Jesus can say it because he has the authority. He's the deliverer. And he says it to anyone who trusts him. Let him go. This one trusts me. Let him go. Death has no hold on this one. Let him go. Fear and pain and loss are over. Let him go. And that's the perspective that all of us who are Christian can have when it comes to death. It's what sets the Christian funeral apart. And then in the last few years we've had a few of those right here. Yes, there's sadness and pain and loss, but at the same time there's hope and joy and faith. And that's the third point I want to make. When you've got this sort of perspective, when you've got this sort of hope and faith in Jesus about death, it's actually possible to say with the Apostle Paul that to die is gain. To die is gain. Philippians chapter 1, Paul is writing from prison. There's every chance he's going to die. And as he thinks about the future, here's what he says. Verse 20. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body whether by life or by death. It's a very real prospect he's going to die but he's not foolhardy. He's actually scared about dying and so he's praying for courage that he might face whatever happens boldly. He wants Jesus to be honoured by his responses. I wonder if that's something you pray, that whatever happens, Christ might be exalted in your life, even in your death. But notice verse 21, what's distinctive for the Christian. Paul says, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. On the one hand, his whole life is summed up by putting Christ first. But that's not all. To die is even better. Life is good, but death is better. Extraordinary thing to say, isn't it? To die is gain. He goes on to to weigh up these two options, life and death. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me, 
yet what shall I choose? I don't know, I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, at least for me, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. From his point of view, it's only positives when he thinks about dying. He's being with Christ, it's the end of pain, it's the start of eternity, it'll be paradise. But in the end he realises that he can make more difference on earth for heaven's sake. And so he's content, he's content to remain until God's timing is up. Can you imagine that? Seriously weighing up the options of death or life. In the end it's only Paul's servant heart for people like the Philippians that makes him content to stay. Christians need not fear death is what Paul is saying to us. Paul's not being blasé or flippant about death. Some people think it's, it's almost sinful for a Christian to be sad at a, when another Christian dies. But that's not Paul's position. Paul is not flippant about death. He, he acknowledges that death is cruel and painful and awful. Down in chapter 2, he's talking about his friend Epaphroditus, Philippians chapter 2. Epaphroditus was so sick he nearly died. And, and look at Paul's response in verse 27. Epaphroditus was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Epaphroditus' death would have been tragic. And that's true for Christians, isn't it? That, that death is tragic, sorrow upon sorrow. And yet at the same time, it's also true that for the Christian who dies, it's, it's gain. It's benefit. The fourth and final thing I want to say is this. Death is not the way it will be. Death is not the way it will be. God's plan is that one day death will be defeated. Not just for Jesus, not just the hope and promise and expectation of defeat, not just spiritual death, but physical death will be finished as well. One day there'll be the complete, utter, eternal defeat of death. I want to finish with a quick glance at a passage we'll come back to more than once before this series is over. Revelation chapter 21. Uh, Revelation 21 describes eternity, when the dividing wall between heaven and earth is gone, when God and humanity live together in a new heaven and a new earth, one entity. And in that day, verse 4 says... He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. At the moment we're living in the old order where there is crying and mourning and pain, where there is death even for Christians. But if we are Christian then we long for that day We trust in Jesus who is the resurrection and the life and we hope for life even though we die. So as you think about death, perhaps as you go to your next funeral, how will you approach it? Will you use it to reflect on your own mortality? 
on your own trust in Jesus or lack of trust? Or will you suffer from death, attention deficit disorder? Will you be like those people at the funerals I take where death catches their attention for a moment but they walk out and forget and the moment is gone? Consider death and cling to Jesus. He is the one in whom there is life and hope and joy. If you do, then you can truly say that death is gain, that it's better by far to be with Christ. Let's live with that hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to see uh, your ways with sober perspective, Uh, that you would help us to see our lives with clarity, that we may not be clouded, that we may not ignore death looming. We pray at the same time that rather than despair you would help us to see Jesus and help us to trust him, that even though we die we might live. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.